we will uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. And as uh, noted in the bulletin, uh, this week we're going to begin a sermon series from 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll be in uh, this chapter for the month of April. And so I invite you to turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we begin with verse 1. In the words to which I would like to call your attention to this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks again for the word that you've blessed your people with. And dear God, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit (coughs) that you would continue to guide us and direct us in accordance with your blessed truth. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As I noted uh, with the children, one of the interesting things about this particular passage that we have before us is the references that Paul makes to the Scriptures. Now, it's important, of course, to understand what Paul means by that. You know, by the time Paul is writing, uh, he has the Old Testament. He may have uh, some uh, portions of uh, the New Testament. He he may have a Gospel. He may have a, a letter or two. But the reality is that when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 15, he is talking about the books of the Old Testament. He's speaking of Genesis, of Ruth, of the Psalms, of Zechariah, of Isaiah. And one of the things that Paul is making clear to us in this passage is the way in which he has come to know the Gospel. How he has come to know that Jesus Christ died for sin. That He laid down His life for sinners. He knows these things to be true because the Scriptures have revealed these things unto Him. 
Now it's important again to think some more about that. What, what does Paul mean that he's come to know these things because the Scriptures have spoken of them? Well, Again, let's back up a few steps. Well, what is the Gospel anyway? Why is the Gospel necessary? What is the purposes of the preaching of the apostles and those who have come after? Why is it so important that they make it clear that what they are saying is in accordance with the Scriptures? I think we get a sense of that in the way which Paul talks over and over here about the receiving of this truth. For the apostles, and especially for the apostle Paul, it's vital that everyone understands that he has received the gospel. It's not something that he made up in his basement. It's not something that he cobbled together over time in order to win an audience. Because of course, in the days of the Apostle Paul, just as in the days of Jesus, there were many false messiahs running around the Mediterranean. Many who claimed to speak for Jehovah. Who claimed to have the answer for the problems that the Jews faced in that day. Of course, the the Bible tells us about a few of them. Uh, There were uh, at least two different guys named Judas who were involved in rebellions in these days. We hear in the book of Acts about a rebellion in the day of Pentecost where uh, a man had led uh, Jewish uh, men into battle against the Roman army. And of course, we know what took place because the Roman authorities took good records. In fact, you can go and you can read about uh, the uh, various uh, battles that took place in uh, the land of Palestine in those days. And of course, we're probably most familiar with the great battle that took place years after Paul at uh, Masada. You know, that, that great scene there where uh, the Jews are in, the, in, in this, uh, this giant fortress up on top of a mountain. You can go there today and see what an immense structure this was. But they were up there and the Romans kind of just waited them out. And then eventually they built these uh, giant siege engines and went up and destroyed the armies of the Jews. So Paul here is very concerned that his hearers, these men and women in Corinth, know where it is that he has come to understand that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah. He is the promised one of the Old Testament. And how does he go about doing that? Well, again, if you go read his other letters, they are constantly filled with Paul saying, look at what Isaiah said. Look at what the Psalms said. Look at what Hosea has told us about the Messiah. Well, let's look for a moment at a couple of these passages. First of all, from Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, we hear here a prophecy, a testimony of the resurrection itself. In Hosea 6, 2, it says, After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we may live 
in His sight. Likewise, in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, uh, the prophet there says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Now, if Hebrews 13, 14 should sound familiar to you, it's because Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians, will come and quote this verse. Now, of course, Paul, in quoting Hosea 13, 14, will do so from the Greek Bible. He will do so from the Greek Old Testament. And what's important about that is a reminder of something that we can understand about our own Bibles. While this may seem like somewhat unrelated as an aside, it's vital to us as we consider our own copies of the Holy Scriptures. Paul here, quoting again from Isaiah 13.14 and 1 Corinthians uh, 15.55 says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Now, again, if we go back and we look at Hosea 13.14, they won't line up exactly. And why is that? Well, again, Paul is quoting from the Greek New Testament, whereas our Bibles are translated from the Hebrew Old Testament. And one of the things we can learn from this, and again, this is not one of those kind of pie-in-the-sky theologian things, but it's important for us to be able to trust our translations as being the very Word of the living and true God. That these are not interpretations, but they are the very same as those Hebrew Old Testaments, as those Greek Old Testaments, as our Greek New Testaments. Because, again, there there will be a lot of people who will tell you, and you'll see this often reported in the news, that what we have in our English translations is but an interpretation of these older, uh, of these older uh, uh, books and that we need to understand that things can get lost in translation. But again, if Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ can feel safe in, tra- in giving to us a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek, then we likewise can faithfully read our English Bibles as the very Word of the living God, just as they read from that translation from Hebrew to Greek. Now again, Paul, again, in what he's doing here, in laying out the authority of the Bible, the authority of the Old Testament, is also telling something to the Gentiles in Corinth. That what has come to pass in Jesus Christ is in fact not only for the Jews, but also for them. And how does Paul go about doing that? Well, and he does that by going back to that same Old Testament. Now, he doesn't do it here in 1 Corinthians 15, but Paul will go back to the servant songs of Isaiah. You know, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 44 are, are but two examples, and he will show them, say, hey, This Jewish Messiah, this Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, He has come. And He has come not only to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, but He has also come to bring the Gentiles out of death, out of sin, and into the new life 
in Jesus Christ. And Paul here, as he opens up 1 Corinthians 15, of course, is particularly focused about the doctrine of the resurrection. About the promise of Jesus Christ that those who die in the Lord will be raised from the dead. That the, 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 the dying of the body is a but a moment in time. That what happens when we go into the grave here next to us in this building, when we are put into the ground with our forefathers and foremothers, the promise of the resurrection is that on the day of judgment, the graves out here will give up their dead, they will come out of the ground, their, their souls will be reunited to their bodies, and we will go into the general judgment, and the sheep will be set to the right, and the goats to the left. And of course, if we die in the Lord, what is the promise of the resurrection? The promise of the resurrection is, is that we will be one of the sheep uh, that's mentioned in Matthew 25, and we will go into the heavenly places with Jesus Christ, both body and soul. Now, of course, there are many running around in this day who not only are trying to lead rebellions against Israel, but also who are denying the facts of the resurrection. Some will be out preaching, uh, saying that the body is evil, that your flesh is evil, and that what salvation is, is the removal of your soul from this, uh, this jail cell. And what goes into the grave is immaterial. That the resurrection is about what happens to the soul. But the Apostle Paul, again, is focused here in bringing out the truths of the Scriptures of the Old Testament to prove to Jews and to Gentiles that the resurrection is more than the raising of the soul from the dead. But body and soul are both united together in the resurrection and are brought into the presence of Christ. And body and soul, we physically will reign in heaven with our Savior. Again, we think about this, especially from the Psalms. Paul, of course, will quote uh, from Psalm 16.10 and other places. And of course, Psalm 16.10 is one of these uh, verses that will find usage both by Jesus and by the apostles. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now when we hear that verse, of course, we immediately apply it to Jesus Christ. And of course, that is the primary application. That Jesus Christ, who is the Holy One of God, is not going to see corruption in the grave. Of course, when we think about Jesus not seeing corruption, one of the things, of course, we need to testify is that Jesus had a real body. That Jesus was not inhabited by, a, by the Spirit. That Jesus was not kind of an apparition. That Jesus was not a kind of a stand-in for the second person of the Holy Trinity, but that Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin, born in Bethlehem, was fully man and fully God. And in every way He was God, and in every way He was man. And we usually talk about this by saying that when Jesus was a little boy... And he was running around in the yard around his house in Nazareth. 
and he tripped over a stone or tripped over a toy that he had left out, what happened to Jesus? Jesus fell on the ground, his knee was skinned, and he bled real blood. That his body was subject to the natural things that we are subject to as human beings. And so this corruption that is spoken of here is not a mention of the fact uh, that Jesus' body was kind of immaculately taken care of in the grave. But the promise we see in Psalm 16.10 is the same promise uh, that our bodies, as they go into the grave, as they go into uh, the, the plot in the ground, that God will oversee them, He will watch over them, and in the day of the resurrection, He will bring our bodies back together and we will be raised from the dead fully formed. Now why does this matter? This, this, this seems like the kind of stuff that, you know, again, you know, ministers like to talk about over coffee and things like that. You know, we, we, we like to get into the big word stuff, but one of the good things about being from West Virginia is I don't know any big words, so I don't have to worry about getting in conversations like that. Well, when we think about this, again, it's vital to what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. He is teaching the Gentiles and the Jews something about what has happened in the Gospel. That the Gospel is more uh, than just the transfer of our sin onto Jesus and the transfer of Jesus' righteousness unto us. That there are benefits that come with the Gospel. And of course, this is central to what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. That because Jesus Christ has died for our sins, because Jesus Christ has bore the wrath of God upon Himself, because He has taken upon the curse of Adam, the promise that we have is that God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for He shall receive me. And think once more about what Psalm 49.15 is saying. It says again, but God redeemed my soul from the power of the grave. Well again, what is the power of the grave? Again, what does Paul say there when he quotes uh, Hosea 13:14? O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? And what does it mean to have our souls redeemed from the power of the grave? Well again, think once more to what we said about the nature of the body. And we think about what God had done at the creation. And what does He say on the sixth day after He has made us? And He looked at us and said we were what? That we were very good. And again, when God made Adam, He didn't kind of make this ephemeral thing. Again, when God formed us out of the dust, formed us out of the dirt of the ground, He formed Adam into a real person. He formed Adam into an actual physical being. Because again, if we deny that Adam was a real person, what does it say about the redemptive work of Jesus Christ? Well again, it it, it denies that there's a reason for the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So when we think about what is being said here about the power of the grave, again we have to think back to the curse that was laid upon us because of the sin of Adam. And what was the words that 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 uh, the uh, that the uh, that, that Satan through the, the hand of the serpent spoke to Eve? Well, surely you will not die today. 
And of course, that's what Satan does, right? He, he often appears as an angel of light and kind of speaks in a way that's not technically wrong, uh, but is most certainly false. And the reality was that they would not die that day. In fact, what do we hear in Genesis 4? Was the fact that Adam and Eve lived for hundreds of years after they were put out of the garden. But what were they now subject to? Adam and Eve were now subject to the curse of death. They were now subject to the power of the grave. And again, when we think about the power of the grave, it's more than just death itself. The power of the grave is hell. The power of the grave is eternal condemnation. And so what has happened in salvation, in redemption, in the work of Jesus Christ, is not only have we been saved from our sins, but we have been saved from the power of the grave. We've been saved from death itself. From that eternal death, that victory that death has over those outside of Jesus Christ. And so brothers and sisters, as we again think about what Paul is saying here, again this is why he continues to go back to this phrase, according to the Scriptures. Because he wants these people to understand that what Jesus has done is not only real, but what Jesus has done was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. That what God revealed unto Isaiah, unto Hosea, and unto David in the Psalms was in preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've said this before, but it's worth saying again that Jesus Christ was not God's plan B. That God, after Adam had sinned, didn't have kind of a divine council where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit kind of gathered themselves together and said, well, what do we do now? Adam has sinned. And we have to kick him out of the garden. Well, there goes our plans. There goes what we wanted Adam to do. He's messed up everything. Of course, that's not how God works. God is not reactive to the events of man's desire. We don't believe in a God who's open-ended, who changes from day to day. A God who who is sitting in heaven, scratching His head, wondering what's going to happen next. And what would it be like to live with a God like that? Well, that's how the gods of the nations are. That's how the gods of the Philistines, the god of the Amorites, uh, the gods of uh, the Philistines were. Every day, the Philistines woke up not knowing how Baal would behave that day. What Baal would do that day. And so that's why they were so insistent on uh, those fleshly sacrifices uh, to Baal. Because they were in fear of what Baal would think to do that day. So they needed to appease Baal. And it's interesting how if you look in kind of comparative religion, you look at religions throughout the world and you see how they worship, almost all of them have this primary thing in mind. This idea that their God is someone who needs to be appeased. That's not how the God of the Scriptures works. It's not how the Lord Jesus Christ works. And that's why Paul can go back to the Bible, go back to the Old Testament Scriptures, and rest in them. And trust in them. 
Because the same God who told Isaiah, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. Again, the same God who spoke these words to Isaiah had already, before the foundation of the world, called out His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of His people. And we read, for instance, at the beginning of, uh, of the book of Ephesians, you know, that, that, that wonderful testimony that Paul gives us. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. One of the interesting things about this, this portion of Ephesians is that Paul writes in the past tense. No, how, how can somebody be blessed if they don't even if they're not even born yet? Well, how can someone be blessed if they haven't been born yet? Well, it's because before the foundation of the world, God has ordained these things to come to pass. Again, that's one of the great assurances we have as Christians. Is that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That when God makes a promise to us, we can rest and trust in that promise. We don't have to sit around every day wondering whether or not it's going to happen. We can know that the same God who revealed these things unto Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 is the same God who appeared to Abram in the land of Ur and promised him that he, he would leave everything that he knew and go to this land that he had never once been to. That the Lord would not only bless him, but the Lord would bless every generation that came after him. And if the Old Testament is anything, it's that. It's God's faithful blessing upon the people. That no matter how wicked they are, no matter how much they have denied God, God never once denies them. We hear that in Isaiah 53 as we continue there. Again, by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Now, this is the promise of the Gospel. That we who were dead in sin, we who were strangers to the promise, we who are outside the family of God, we who have lived lives not in accordance to the Scriptures, but in accordance to the ever-changing whims of culture and of man, have been called out of that darkness. We've been called out of that blindness. And our eyes have been opened to see again what we hear there in Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has been what? He has been smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes, we are healed. Again, these words are, 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 are words that we've heard over and over again. Some of us for 80 plus years. 
But think for a moment how long ago these words were spoken by the prophet Isaiah. We're talking somewhere, I'm not going to try to do math, somewhere around 2,700 years ago, these words were spoken by Isaiah. And they were as true for Isaiah and the people in that day as they were for the people in the day of the Apostle Paul. And they're as true for the Apostle Paul as they are for us. And this is why, again, when we hear Paul say, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which I also received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved. In this idea, again, that we have been the receivers of this grace. The receivers of this revelation. That just as Paul humbled himself under the plain teaching of Holy Scripture, the call to the believer, the call to each one of us this day, Again, to remember our relationship with the Scriptures. That they have come from the hand of Almighty God. That they have come uh, through His uh, means of revelation. And that He's given to us uh, the testimony of His truth. He's given to us His whole counsel. It's often been said that the Bible is authoritative on everything that it speaks. And it speaks about everything. One of the hardest things for the Christian and for young believers and for old believers is coming to terms with that reality. That we are not masters of the Word. But that we are to be mastered by the Word that God has given to us. And this is especially true when we consider the nature of the resurrection itself. Because again, just as in the day of the Apostle Paul, so it is today. There are many that you hear that deny uh, the, 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 the manner of the resurrection. You know, they will spiritualize the resurrection. They will uh, take the resurrection to mean something completely different. Uh, but what, what are we called to do? We are called to read what the Scripture says. We're called to understand the plain meaning of the text. We're called to rest and to trust in the received Word of the living God. For contained in this Word is the Gospel. Of course, we're not saved by the Word. We are saved by Jesus Christ. And where is it that we learn of Jesus Christ? Then the Word that God has given to us. So brothers and sisters, as we close this morning and as we go out unto that world that has denied Christ and Him crucified, let us hear what Paul has to say to us this morning. That just as He was one who persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That truth is true for each one of us. That though we were once persecutors of the faith, though we were once ones who spit in the eye of God, God by His grace has called us into this new life, into this new family, into the sure promises of the eternal God. And let us rest and trust alone in this Savior, in this Redeemer, who has most truly borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly